Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper. In this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Clayton, Australia to discuss early sedation with dexmedetomidine in critically ill patients with Dr. Yaya Shahabi. Good morning. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Yahya Shahabi. I'm an intensive care um, physician at the Monash University at Monash Health. Uh, I'm also the professor and director of critical care research uh, at the School of Clinical Sciences at Monash University and Monash Health. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us uh, this morning. Um, in this past week, uh, your group published uh, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled early sedation with dexmedetomidine in critically ill patients. Could you explain to us why you performed uh, this randomized trial? Certainly. Uh, before I go ahead with that, I just wanted to uh, acknowledge the um, sites that have participated in this past trial and also all my uh, co-authors and my colleagues on the management committee and the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group who have all uh, played a substantial role in making the trial uh, successful and uh, to get it to conclusion. Um, going back to the question about uh, why did we perform this trial, um, the, the SPICE idea, which is uh, short for sedation practice and intensive care sedation, really came after the sitcom study uh, which compared dexmedetomidine to midazolam was published in JAMA in 2009, which showed a reduced delirium and ventilation time uh, with the use of dexmedetomidine. Uh, since then, uh, the idea evolved uh, following uh, more data that's coming, like some experimental data to suggest that there's a potential in neurorenal and cardiovascular protective effects from the use of dexmedetomidine. Um, further ahead, uh, some data came from some clinical data came to suggest that in certain population like septic patients, the use of dexmedetomidine uh, may improve mortality. Um, we know that uh, a lot of the randomized control trials that was published comparing dexmedetomidine with conventional sedatives had uh, certain limitations and shared some important limitations. So with all that in mind, uh, I would summarize that the three main reasons for uh, conducting this fast trial was primarily to first address the limitation of these previous RCTs on dexmedetomidine but secondly, to see whether the use of dexmedetomidine early uh, rather than as a secondary agent would produce a effect on mortality and significant other outcomes. So essentially, the trial was performed to say, okay, well, if these trials showing that dexmedetomidine is this good, well, what happens if we give it early, you know, from the commencement of mechanical ventilation in these critically ill patients, would we see a difference in important clinical outcomes like mortality, uh, cognitive function, and other important outcomes? Great. And then how did you perform your trial, and how would you say it differs from previous uh, trials or studies on the same topic? 
I think um, the this fast program. Uh, I mean, this this trial was really the the final phase um, of a program that we ran over the last ten years, and uh, started by Spice One, which was essentially looking into what are the clinicians' uh, usual practice is in managing critically ill ventilated patients. Uh, and then we um, put together a pilot study to see whether the, the trial intervention would work in the context of a randomized multi-center trial, which was SPARS-2. And then uh, SPARS-3 um, followed that uh, and it started at a, it was designed as a multinational open-label randomized control trials, uh, trial for, for a multiplicity of reasons it was uh, open-label. Uh, the pilot sites started recruitment in November 2003, and the study concluded the recruitment in February 2018. Uh, it was conducted in eight countries, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, Ireland, Italy, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and Switzerland in uh, a total of 74 intensive care units. The main inclusion criteria for the study was those patients who were ventilated for more than 24 hours, and we wanted, we wanted to target patients who are critically ill and ventilated, not those patients who would come overnight for a short ventilation time, get x-rays in the morning, and then go to the ward back in two days. So it was important for us to capture a sicker population of those who are ventilated. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that the study uh, provide dexmedetomidine as early as possible. So one of the exclusion criteria, which was important, is that anybody who has been ventilated in an intensive care unit for more than 12 hours would be excluded. In addition, because we wanted to address the cognitive function long-term and the institutional dependency long-term, uh, we excluded patients who had suspected or proven acute brain pathology at randomization. So we wanted people at entry into the study to have essentially normal neurological function. Also those who had significant um, things like spinal cord injury or any disease that would be expected to require prolonged mechanical ventilation, all those patients were also excluded. And they really are the main um, exclusion criteria. Um, in terms of differences with other um, studies or other RCTs that are done on dexmedetomidine, uh, I think there are some fundamental differences between SPICE-3 and prior randomized control trials. Firstly, our inclusion window was very short. Uh, we did not include anybody who was ventilated for more than 12 hours. So comparing that, for example, with sitcom, where the inclusion window could be up to 96 hours. For studies like Prodix and Mardix, for example, the inclusion hours were up to 48 hours. So there was quite a long time, a long window of inclusion. Uh, our randomization time was less than five hours. So patients in this study uh, had a median time from being eligible to inclusion to randomization of about less than five hours in both arms. And this is incredibly short 
And this is very important because we wanted to say this is early intervention. Um, and as such, dexmedetomidine was given as a primary first-line sedative agent, uh, as we planned to do. Second, uh, our sample size was significantly larger by a magnitude compared with the with previous trials. We recruited about four, we recruited 4,000 patients, and as such, our trial is the largest sedation trial conducted so far. Uh, while uh, and this this um, number of uh, patients that we recruited gives us a an adequate power to test for patient-centered outcomes such as mortality. And this was the previous trials were not powered to do that. Third, uh, our trial was a pragmatic clinical effectiveness trial, and as such, it really reflected real-world RCU sedation practice. It also captured the first two to three days of the acute phase of critical illness. And this first two, three days, or the first 48 to 72 hours of somebody being on a ventilator and critically ill is really a blind spot in many of in the in sedation literature until now. Uh, there is very little data that come from randomized controlled trials to describe that early phase of critical illness in terms of sedation dynamics. And finally, uh, our trial collected detailed data on sedation level. We collected rest levels every four hours. We collected pain scores every four hours. We collected delirium status every day while patients were in RCU. And patients were followed for up to 180 days. For, we followed patients for six months. So uh, this is just, in summation, uh, the difference between uh, a large trial, pragmatic trial like SPICE 3, and the previous randomized trials that were done on dexmedetomidine. Thank you for that excellent overview. So what were your primary findings? The main finding of this trial is that the overall mortality was no different between using dexmedetomidine as a primary sedative agent. Uh, or using usual care sedatives, which are primarily propofol or midazolam. Um, so essentially, this trial uh, is an overall neutral trial, and dexmedetomidine failed to impact overall mortality. However, because the trial was a pragmatic trial, uh, we've included 4,000 patients in eight countries, 74 RCUs, we expected a degree of heterogeneity at multiple levels, which we know is a major problem in RCU research. So we have planned a pre-specified subgroup analysis of six baseline variables, which we thought would impact the treatment effect in these patients. These six outcomes, including the median Apache score as a surrogate of severity of illness, the geographic region or the country in which the uh, randomization occurred, uh, the oxygen index, uh, which reflects the severity of lung injury at randomization by using the PF ratio as an, uh, an index for that, whether the patient has suspected or proven sepsis, uh, 
whether it was operative or non-operative admission, and finally, the patient age. We deliberately chose the median age, the median PF ratio, the median Apache score as a cutoff for this subgroup analysis because that will give us 50% of the cohort in two subgroups, which will give us a large sample size even within the subgroup analysis. For example, we chose the median age of 63.7 years uh, and we cut the data um, between above the median age and below the median age. Um, that gave us almost a thousand patients in each arm above the median age and below the median age. And they, they're all randomized as per the study criteria. What was interesting is that the subgroup analysis showed no heterogeneity except with age. And what we found, which was not surprising to us, we expected that age would have a heterogeneity effect or a, a treatment modification effect um, because we don't believe that a younger patient who is 35 or 40 is going to be handled the same way as a patient who is 70 years old. What was surprising, though, is that the, there was a divergent effect on mortality, which was surprising to us. What we found, there was a higher mortality in younger patients, those who are lower than the median age of the cohort, with the use of dexmedetomidine. Uh, in contrast, there was a lower mortality in older patients when they were treated with dexmedetomidine. Uh, we tossed this many ways, and whichever way we ran the dice, the, we got the same answer. We ran a post hoc analysis using age as a continuous variable and showed that there is a almost a semi-linear um, relationship between age and mortality, and there was kind of like a cutoff uh, between harm and benefit around the 65 years uh, of age. So this was an important subgroup analysis that we, you know, we're still going to look into it. There were other important findings which are kind of expected and not surprising for those who are familiar with the use of dexmedetomidine in ventilated patients. Uh, there was a small but significant increase in ventilation-free days and delirium and coma-free days. In addition, there was a reduced number of daily positive calm RCU, especially in the first 7 to 10 days with the use of dexmedetomidine. Uh, again, there was a small but significant shorter ventilation time with using dexmedetomidine. Importantly, all other secondary outcomes showed no difference. There was no difference in the percentage of patients who were institutionally dependent or those who had a cognitive decline at six months or in the performance at the quality of life questionnaire at six months. What was noteworthy as well is that in this population, when we looked at cognitive decline at six months, it was relatively small. And the same with the quality of life assessment. 
the percentage of patients who were institutionally dependent at six months was also relatively small, almost likely it's less than 7%. This is in contrast to observational trials, uh, observational data that showed that there was a significant cognitive decline in survivors of critical illness at six months. We did not see that in this population. There are also other process-related outcomes which are also not surprising. The usual care sedatives were primarily propofol and to a lesser degree midazolam. In the dexmedetomidine arm, um, to achieve the prescribed sedation level as dictated by the clinicians who are treating the patients, supplemental sedatives were used in the form of propofol and to a lesser degree midazolam. However, that use was always at a quite a significantly lower dose than what you would see in usual care arms. So there was a significant sparing effect, but it was necessary to use supplemental sedatives to achieve prescribed sedation. In practice, as we know, uh, clinicians commonly prescribe different sedation targets based on what they think is for patient comfort and safety. We saw this in our trial where clinicians commonly prescribed lower sedation targets than minus two for a variety of reasons which are clinically desirable, especially in the first 48 to 72 hours. Uh, again, when we looked at the amount and the uh, percentage of RAS scores that were within the target range, especially in the first two to seven days, uh, there was a small but also, but again, significant increase in the number of RAS scores within target in the dexmedetomidine group. Finally, in terms of adverse events and serious adverse events, uh, these were reported by SART investigators and not systematically collected uh, during the trial. As expected, there was more bradycardia and more hypotension and more serious adverse events reported in the form of sinus arrest in patients who were receiving dexmedetomidine. However, these were, in terms of percentages, um, correlate relatively well with what we saw in previous trials. None of these uh, serious adverse events led to a fatal outcome in any of those patients. So how would you interpret your findings and what do you think are the major limitations of your trial? I think although the overall mortality effect is neutral, the divergent effect in mortality uh, could be potentially significant. Uh, we agree as investigators that the subgroup analysis are often exploratory. Uh, however, the fact that we had quite a large number of patients in each subgroup who were randomized uh, may give a, um, a feeling that this may be a potentially important finding. Uh, clearly, uh, this effect on mortality, especially in the elderly, needs to be confirmed as a matter of urgency uh, because of its impact on older patients receiving dexmedetomidine uh, as a, when they are critically ill and ventilated. Second, many clinicians who are familiar with dexmedetomidine would have expected a compelling result 
in terms of the effect on delirium and ventilation. Uh, the positive secondary outcomes, such as the delirium-free days or ventilator-free days, they are small in magnitude, and some may not see them as clinically important differences. They do, however, support the notion of previous randomized clinical trials that dexmedetomidine reduces delirium and ventilation time. Lastly, the use of supplemental sedatives in the dexmedetomidine arm is really consistent with what we see in a clinical practice. Uh, clinicians usually use what we call a balanced uh, approach to sedation, and they use multi-component approach to achieving a desired sedation level in these patients. One of the, the main limitations of our trial is that our trial was unblinded, uh, and it's in, studied in a fairly heterogeneous population. Inclusion of patients with known need for deep sedation was also a problem, uh, and this may have impacted the overall deeper sedation level that we saw in the first two to three days. Uh, so additionally, if we look at the baseline data for those patients who were admitted in the study, their rest levels were in the deep sedation level. So patients were uh, mainly deeply sedated at entry. Those who needed to be deeply sedated were also included, and that may have uh, contributed to the level of deep sedation that was seen in the first two or three days. In addition, clinicians were allowed to prescribe deeper sedation level uh, than what we saw, than, than what we targeted as a minus two to plus one. So they're mainly the limitation of this study as we saw it uh, at the end of the study. Great, and then I have a few queries about that. So um, as you mentioned, uh, in your study, you targeted a RAS with negative two to plus one, and plus one uh, makes a patient uh, either anxious or apprehensive. A number of clinicians would have preferred a RAS target of negative two to zero where the patient is alert and calm. I was hoping you'd be able to comment on that. Uh, certainly. I mean, the, when we say minus two to plus one, uh, essentially because we wanted patients to be more lightly sedated. So they may be at minus one, they're slightly restless. Uh, but some patients, um, uh, some patients, even when they're slightly restless, they are easy to be reassured and they're actually fine. So it's really to give clinicians a, a, a range of where they could be and where that could be acceptable. We definitely did not expect patients, if somebody is at zero, they will be moved to plus one. We expected people to be running really around the zero, minus one, minus two if possible, but we would not expect them to be, you know, essentially restless. Our data actually showed that uh, a lot of those patients were not up in the positive range of RAS. Uh, this is the same RAS range that was used in multiple other trials, uh, especially with sitcom, which uh, we, we also used a minus two to plus one. Gotcha. And then in terms of the RAS score of negative five to, not the RAS score, but this, uh, some patients required deep sedation of negative five to negative three, uh, some clinicians may raise the question that um, with the cumulative effects of using both uh, dexmedetomidine, propofol, midazolam, and fentanyl, all of which can uh, cause bradycardia and hypotension, 
And the fact that in the dexmedetomidine group, those patients were maxed out on the their dose, could that not have explained the adverse events um, seen in the uh, dexmedetomidine group? Uh, it definitely could. And I think uh, this is probably in the younger patients uh, in which their requirements for supplemented sedative was substantially higher than the older population, which seemed to you know, be more sensitive to the dexmedetomidine given or the sparing effects of dexmedetomidine. So uh, although when we look at the adverse events between the older or the younger group, uh, there was, uh, you, would, you would say there was no statistically significant difference, but definitely the absolute numbers were more in the younger age group. So you're quite right that the combination of those agents together uh, you know, in some patients can produce a substantial cardiovascular impact. So with that in mind, um, were you able to identify um, any patterns in terms of which patients had the greatest, uh, had the greatest risk of developing um, the uh, bradycardia or cardiac arrest due to Presidex? Um, they were primarily, with the sinus pauses and the sinus arrests, most of them happened when there was, when the patients were actually kind of awake, and they were either coughing in the tube or, um, you know, or happy or, or being suctioned. So it was in in times when there was a uh, an enhanced vagal activity in the presence of dexmedetomidine, and uh, you know people who use dexmedetomidine often they we see that we see that patients who get suctioned. Sometimes even patients having a nasogastric tube being inserted, triggering a vagal effect uh, in the presence of dexmedetomidine, it would cause a sinus arrest. Um, so this occurred more in those types of patients. Uh, we have not really yet seen, because there would be a lot of more um, analysis of the data that we collected, as you would appreciate, the data set is quite um, vast and, and rich and there will be a lot more examination and exploration of these findings. Uh, we have not seen something like just coming in our face to say, here it is, they're the group that had this problem. Okay, that's very important to appreciate you saying that. Um, you, you mentioned um, the difference uh, in outcomes according to age, um, and I think it's very important, as you said, that it was a pre-specified outcome. Um, some may push back and say that uh, you were powered for mortality, but that when you do your subgroup analyses that um, you're invoking multiple testing. Um, so is it possible that these findings are significant, but that if you adjust for multiple testing, um, that uh, the significant difference goes away? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's why we've done the uh, assessment and the analysis of the age effect in multiple different ways. And even after adjustment for multiplicity in the subgroup analysis, the heterogeneity to age was still very highly significant. I mean, it was a, uh, the p-value for heterogeneity was 0 0.003, which is quite highly significant. The new immature medicine has a new policy in terms of uh, recording, reporting p-values that they would not allow these p-values to be reported in the um, in the manuscript, but at a, at a heterogeneity p-value of 0 0.003, this is highly significant. 
um, and that's after correction for multiplicity. Perfect. Thanks for clarifying that. And then in the um, discussion, you mentioned that um, uh, daily sedation uh, vacations weren't uh, mandated across the study and that adverse events were not mandated across uh, the different study sites. I was hoping you could just comment on that. Well, the um, I mean, we, we, we took into account what we knew at the time of the study um, design. Uh, daily sedation interruption, uh, which was also shown by the Canadian trial, that it was n it was no better than protocolized sedation in reducing ventilation time. So we did not mandate that. However, we did ask the clinicians and the bedside carers to use whatever they see feasible to achieve target sedation, including cessation of all sedatives if required, titration of the sedative down or up as required. So we, we gave them a almost like a free reign in terms of adjusting cessation or doing whatever they required to bring patients back to the target range of sedation. Uh, so although it was not mandated, it was pretty much allowed across the trial. Gotcha. And then the last question I have for you is, um, I've had some clinicians ask, uh, would you expect a mortality difference um, with uh, uh, dexmedetomidine? And on one hand, I definitely understand the importance of having a hard endpoint like mortality, but some may argue, um, yes, we need to have hard endpoints, but um, is it possible to achieve that endpoint? Um, I was hoping you just comment on that, and I think you referenced uh, previous studies in the paper about this. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, people would say, well, why would you go for 90-day mortality? And I think uh, one thing that we use a primary outcome is primarily to power this sample size. So although we use a 90-day mortality, we expect that to be different. This allowed us to recruit a sample size that will uh, that would have adequate power to test for many other secondary outcomes and also test for patient-centered outcomes. Uh, so that gives us the adequacy of power to test for all these things. Uh, I think all the data that's available about dexmedetomidine before the trial and came out during the trial suggested that it is plausible that dexmedetomidine may reduce mortality. And the data that came from cardiovascular surgery uh, cohorts, uh, data that came from septic patient cohorts, uh, suggested that. And the experimental data also gave a possible plausible explanation why that could be the case. So in, in essence, uh, many believe that dexmedetomidine, although it's a sedative agent, it may have either an immune-modulating effect or a sympatholytic effect that's impacting the stress response on those patients, leading to that to produce a difference in mortality. The other side of the, of the, of the coin is that we've shown in previous trials, and others also have shown the same, that sedation, deep sedation, especially in the first 48 hours, and the duration of delirium, both of them are associated with increased mortality. So if you have a drug like dexmedetomidine, which 
is supposed to reduce the depth of sedation in that critical period of the first 48 to 72 hours and also reduce the burden of delirium in those patients, you would assume that this would lead to an improved mortality. So, you know, there are reasons for using the mortality as an outcome, but I understand that Christian would say, well, if I give a sedative, I would expect a sedative outcome. And that's that's absolutely correct. You know, if you give somebody a blood pressure, you know, uh, infusion like norepinephrine, for example, you would expect that to raise the blood pressure. Whether that translates into an improvement in mortality, uh, you know, that's a, a different question. Perfect. So how do you think your study advances um, our understanding of dexmedicomidine use in the critical care unit? And how do you think it will influence our clinical practice? I think this past three is really, you know, presents a new frontiers in RCU sedation literature. It is the largest by a mile RCU trial. It uh, addressed the issues uh, that we see in real-world RCU. It was not an artificial trial that was structured for, you know, a particular reason. Uh, it was multi-center. It was reflects the, a fairly generalizable sedation practice across the world. Uh, so it really, because of all that, it described in detail for the first time the dynamic changes and the pattern of the use of sedative agents in those critically ill ventilated patients early in the piece. Uh, as such, you know, clinicians. Uh, do use a balanced multi-component approach to sedation, uh, which we captured very nicely. Uh, in terms of that first 48 hours, uh, the what we captured, which is I believe it has been a blind spot in RCU sedation literature, is highly important for future sedation trials. I think it, uh, uh, you know, what we saw in that first 48 hours is really important that uh, we now know a lot about physicians' behavior, uh, impact of severity of illness, impact of sedative agents used, uh, the sedation targets that are used, uh, and it'll, it'll be a, a lot for uh, us and clinicians to digest the results of this trial. The last thing which I think is very important, I think our trial brings an end to the age-independent sedative paradigm in RCU. I think uh, we've clearly shown that age is really important in terms of the elderly patients have a very different pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic uh, handling of sedative agents uh, when they are critically ill. So based on your study, how do you think uh, future studies could improve on your study design? There are no perfect studies, and uh, we always learn from uh, uh, mistakes to advance uh, our future understanding. How would you either design future studies so that uh, they could improve on this question? I think the most important thing that we learn from this study is that in future sedation trials, we must stratify for age at randomization. I think this is probably the one big learning from our trial. Um, second, I think 
uh, a blinded approach is perhaps the preferred design to avoid reporting bias, especially uh, when it comes to adverse events and serious adverse events. And also in terms of uh, how clinicians address issues at the bedside in terms of sedation targets. Thirdly, probably a sedation target of minus two to plus one is probably too loose. And I think in the future, we would probably go for a lighter sedation level like minus one to zero. Uh, and I think that's, that's quite important. Perhaps our trial also showed that for sedation to lend itself um, in terms of multiplicity of agents used, perhaps a factorial design should be considered in future sedation trials. And um, I, I'm going to mention the word, but uh, you know, adaptive platforms of trial, of, you know, for clinical trials is becoming more popular, and perhaps adaptive sedation trial is probably um, you know something that uh, we would think of doing in the future. Um, the population we tested in our trial uh, is a specific population. It was those who were ventilated for more than 24 hours, had no brain injury, no spinal injury. So those patients who were excluded in our trial, they need to be studied um, in future trials. And finally, which you've alluded to before, mortality as a primary outcome may not be the right endpoint for sedation trials. And, uh, and perhaps patient-reported outcomes or sedation-related outcomes may be a better outcomes to go for. I think this will continue to be a debatable and controversial issue until there is a consensus of what constitutes better sedation-related outcomes for sedation trials. Thank you. Um, and I just want to delve maybe a little bit deeper into one of the points that you mentioned, the issue of blinding in critical care trials. Um, some have argued that it's really impossible to truly blind clinicians or practitioners because they're following up and seeing the effects of their medications and they can infer which medications a patient receives. I was hoping you could just comment on that and whether it's actually truly possible to have double blinding in RCTs. And then the second point, um, so do you think it's important that uh, all RCTs of this type report adverse reporting, adverse events in a structured way or in a mandated way? Well, I'll start with your second question. I think it is uh, important that reporting of adverse events is done in a structured way. I completely agree with you. And I think uh, in hindsight, perhaps that's what we should have done in this trial. However, in a pragmatic trial um, where, you know, you're looking at major outcomes and open-level trial, uh, we did leave it to the PIs on each site to report those adverse events. The other question about the that the, the double blinding is uh, is not possible. Uh, I think it's been done before in multiple trials. It's been done in the Prodex and Mydex, uh, and that double blinding worked extremely well. It was done before uh, with Midazol with Sitcom. It was also a double blinded trial. Uh, so it's it's possible to do without jeopardizing the you know the clinician's um, 
role at the bedside and without clinicians being able to tell what drug is being used. Uh, when we conducted a trial in cardiac surgery, uh, which was published in 2010, uh, the nursing staff said, ah, we will know which one which one is receiving dexmedetomidine. And they were right in 50% of the times. So uh, although, uh, you know, people may say, ah, well, if you're going to give dexmedetomidine, if you're going to be bradycardic, they're not going to know which one it is. Uh, in reality, that's really just a theoretical issue, and it doesn't really happen. Perfect. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered in this interview that you'd like to comment on or expound about? I think I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to mention one last thing that uh, the level of cognitive dysfunction, quality of life, and institutional dependency that we saw in our trial uh, is really in contrast to what is known or what is believed to be the case by observational trials. And uh, I think this is something that we'll, um, we will take time to digest and look into it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that um, in a data set for 4,000 patients, uh, there is a lot that we still need to uncover and analyze. And this is the first chapter in a multiple analysis that we will be producing from this past trial, and I'm sure uh, people will appreciate that uh, what's in the primary manuscript is really just the cover page for a fairly large uh, trial that has a lot of things in it to, to find and to tell the world about it. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Shahabi. I mean, I just want to commend you on an, uh, a re really well-done trial involving uh, many ICU centers that, in many different countries. I think you enrolled, over, as you said, over 4,000 patients, screened almost 25,000. So congratulations to you and your team on a great publication in the NEJM, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with um, the ATS community at such short notice. Um, and we're looking forward to uh, uh, seeing a lot more of your work in the future. Congratulations. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for the opportunity. A big thank you to Dr. Yaya Shahabi, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society. <laughs>